0: James Coates and I used to come to this church a long time ago. I think it was about 18 years ago now that we left uh, and uh, embarked on other adventures. but St. Matt's is the church that I'll always consider my home church. It was where I sort of first started coming to church and really grew in my faith, where I was first encouraged into ministry and uh, where I met my wife. and so it's a pleasure to be with you today. Um, for the last four years since returning to Canberra, we've been worshiping down at St. Mary in the Valley in Corwell. And so that's our our regular home church at the moment. And for the last three and a half years, I've been working as a chaplain at Canberra Grammar School. So that's what I do most of my time. And uh, anyway, Ian Powell asked me about a month ago, he texted and said, any chance you'd be able to come and uh, preach and lead communion at St. Matt's on the 9th? And I said, yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to do that. And so that's why I'm here today. I'm going to be speaking today on Psalm 24. Ian asked me to just choose one of my favourite psalms and preach on it. And I thought, well, Psalm 24 is one I've always loved. And part of the reason I've loved it, funnily enough, is because of a particular song. And so we're going to listen to this song now. It's by an Australian group called Sons of Korah. They're based in Geelong. And they play a lot of the psalms and just basically take the exact wording of the scriptures and put it to music. So uh, the wording's based on the slightly older translation of the NIV Bible. But apart from that, it's almost word for word identical to what was read out for us earlier so we will listen to it now the earth is the Lord, and Oh, my God. enjoyed that song Uh, as we reflect on it i might just lead us in a short prayer lord god we thank you that you are the king of glory and so please help us now to draw near to you help me to speak your words faithfully and clearly and help all of us to desire to seek you and to live with clean hands and a pure heart for christ's sake amen One of the reasons I love that psalm is, I think, or that song, is I think it communicates something of the power and the emotions of the psalm. And of course, when we're looking at the psalms, it's not just words to stir our intellect and our thoughts, but they're also meant to be emotions. And of course, they are written originally as songs, although probably that wasn't the original tune, but nevertheless, I think it's a powerful rendition of it. So Psalm 24 begins on the note of ownership. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And what we find here is a typical Hebrew parallel line structure. So often when you read poetry in the Hebrew in the Old Testament, uh, you'll find couplets, these twin lines that basically say the same thing, just in slightly different words. But often there's a slight development between the lines as well, and that's what we see here. So the first line emphasises that God created everything, and then the second line, that God created everyone. So every single thing, every object, owes its existence and its origins to God, and every single human being is stamped in God's image. And the idea of ownership flows out of creation because... Everything was made by God. Everything, therefore, belongs to God. It is all his. Now, this universal ownership of everything belonging to God, uh, for us as Christians, it's not terribly surprising or novel, but in the ancient world, it was quite a unique understanding. They were used to having lots of different gods, and all these different gods had their different domains and different areas that they were in control over. So if you were traveling, you would want to know the, the God in whose region you are planning to travel. And you would perhaps want to worship that God or make some kind of sacrifice or do something like that. You certainly don't want to get a God offside. It, uh, it isn't a good thing to do. So you don't want to inadvertently offend them. But this psalm is implicitly saying that that mindset, that way of thinking is utter nonsense. Because the entire earth is the Lord's and everything in it. There is not a single square metre of this planet over which God does not say, it is mine. And as I was reflecting on this, I think it's important to remember when it comes to the subject of Christian mission, because ultimately Christian mission is not about introducing a foreign religion, nor is it an expression of cultural superiority. Rather, it is about helping people to know the God in whose image they are made and on whose land they live. It's about helping people know the God who is there. So the world belongs to God and ownership implies responsibility. And this is always the way. When you own something, you look after it. And my children, they're, they're very protective of their things, the things that they own. It's always in your interest to look after something. I've noticed that very often privately owned Facilities and and gardens, whatever it might be, are often looked after much better than publicly owned ones. Why? Because you've got that personal ownership connection there. People who own it, to whom it belongs, who care for it personally. And I've seen this dynamic in churches too, this dynamic of ownership. I think a sense of ownership is generally a good thing when it comes to churches and church properties. I think back to when I was serving in Holbrook and some of the parishioners there who would come in and do the gardening and we had the most beautiful looking roses in the whole town, I thought, because they had this sense of ownership. They cared for it. They knew that it was something that in some sense belonged to them. Now, you can get problems when it comes to church ownership, of course. We don't want it to become so strong that it becomes protective or possessive or unwelcoming towards outsiders or resistant to change, anything like that but nevertheless a sense of ownership is a good and healthy thing. In fact I saw a a beautiful illustration of this just recently. I took a a year seven excursion from Canberra Grammar School. We looked at some of the local churches around that area and one of the ones we visited was the Greek Orthodox Church. I don't know if you've ever been there. Remarkable building. You could just spend ages staring at the ceiling and looking at all the uh, intricate paintings and so on. Uh, But the priest there shared about how one of his parishioners had donated something. I can't even remember what it was. It might have been money for a a new painting on the wall or something. But the parishioner said, this is my house. I love my house. I want to make my house better. This is my house. And I I thought, you know, different kind of emphasis, obviously, with the churches. But I thought it's a beautiful sense of ownership, of care, of wanting to improve the place and make it better because they, they feel like they belong to it in some sense. It's theirs. And as I look at the building project happening over there at this very moment, I see a similar dynamic at work. It's a beautiful expression. You're doing it because you love this place, not perhaps the building in the same kind of way, but because you love what it represents and you're doing it because you want to see the ministry grow and expand. And so that sense of ownership is a great thing. Well, in the case of the world, God owns it. He loves it. He takes responsibility and care for it because it all belongs to him. And verse 2 says, For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Now, this verse is partly a reference back to Genesis when God created the world and he separated the waters and formed the dry land out of them. But it's also a part allusion to the Jewish idea of the sea. So, to the ancient Jews, the sea wasn't like we think of it, a beach holiday, oh, hooray. (laughs) It was rather this terrifying, untamable, wild beast. The sea was this chaotic place of disorder. And so God's creation was about bringing order out of disorder and taming the chaos. And so taken together, these lines show us that the Lord God is the God of creation. Everything owes its existence to him every one depends on him for life. God is the powerful God who brought order out of disorder and a firm foundation out of terrifying chaos. So that's the first part of this psalm. We can sort of divide it into three main sections. This is the first section. And then having established God as the king of creation, the second section then asks the question, how might people worship? this king of creation? How may we come into his presence? Or to ask the question using the language of verse 3, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? And the question makes sense when you realise that uh, Jerusalem was built on a hill and the temple in particular on this hill, Mount Zion, And the temple was considered to be the dwelling place of God on earth. Now, of course, we know that God doesn't just physically dwell inside a building. The ancient Israelites knew that just as much as we do. When Solomon dedicated the newly built temple, in his dedication prayer, he said, the heavens, even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. So they knew that God didn't really dwell there. They knew that. But nevertheless, this was the place where God had chosen to express his presence. And in the Old Testament, when people wanted to worship God or to pray to God, it was to the temple they would go. So the question, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord, is really asking, who is able to worship God? How can we presume to come into the presence of the Almighty Lord, the King of creation? And verse 4 then gives us the answer the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. Now, the idea of clean hands is an image of living rightly. And I was brainstorming this image and thinking, you know, we we use this metaphor of hands quite a bit, even in uh, modern times. So sometimes we talk about catching someone red-handed if they've done the wrong thing. Or we might talk about a criminal as having their fingerprints all over something. We can talk of washing our hands clean of some particular deed if we don't want to have any association with it and demonstrate that. Or we can ask of a situation of wrongdoing, who had a hand in this? So there's quite a number of metaphorical ways that we use this same expression. So having clean hands means being good, doing the right thing and not doing the wrong thing. It's about our outward actions and the acts that we have or haven't done. So those who would draw near to God must not commit wrongdoing. It's fairly straightforward, but it needs to be said. Those who would draw near to God and worship him must not commit wrongdoing. We must turn away from it, have clean hands. But the verse then continues because it's clean hands matched with a pure heart. So clean hands refers to the outward actions and behaviour. The pure heart refers to our inner intentions, our good intentions to match it. And I think this is one of the most searching aspects of God's character, that he is as much concerned with our thoughts and attitudes as he is with our outward behaviour. And uh, I think this is something that can often trip people up because laws can deal with outward behaviour. When I'm at school and I'm talking about uh, people doing the wrong thing and you know, how, sh- how should we address this, well, all, all the kids will say, oh, you, you need more rules, you need more law. You know, if there's a rule against that, then, then it won't happen. And I think, no, <laughs> maybe there's a place for rules. I'm not anti-rules, but, you know, it, it comes from in here, doesn't it? Rules so often deal with our externals, our actions, but they cannot change our intentions and our heart. And yet God sees our heart and knows our intentions. And so true worship needs to begin with the heart. It says elsewhere in the Bible, uh, people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so purity of heart means not entertaining sinful desires or acting on sinful motives. Instead, when we sense them arising within us, we need to resist them. Identify them as the sinful temptations that they are and turn away from them. Seek God's help. Confess them to God. Ask for his purifying work within us. We must be careful what we focus our thoughts on and train ourselves to fill our mind with godly and pure thoughts, not things that are sinful or ungodly. And in that way, there can be integrity between our inner life, our inner thoughts, and our outward actions. And this is what God desires. Those who would come into God's presence must strive to be like that. And also, seeking God properly means putting him first and being devoted to him. And that's what the second half of verse 4 implies. So it says there, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false God. Because there is only one God who is the king and creator of all. We must worship that one God wholeheartedly. I think it's very easy for us in our culture to think that idolatry is something that you know, nobody really commits idolatry, or or if they do, it's because they're from a primitive culture or, or something like that. Perhaps it's easier to spot in other cultures, but in the end, idolatry is a matter of the heart. It doesn't necessarily mean you've got an idol set up in your lounge room at home. It's a matter of the heart because it's about what is most important to us. So if worshipping God is something we only do when it's convenient or when there's no other competing priorities or when we feel like it, we need to ask ourselves, am I really seeking God? Am I really worshipping him? It's easy to talk about worshipping God, but God knows our hearts. We need to make sure we are actually in our hearts putting him first. We cannot fool him. So we need to ensure we seek God and not give space to idolatry of the heart. So that's the question and answer that the psalm poses and responds for us. Who may come into God's presence? Those who put him first, who have clean hands and a pure heart. And verses five to six then contain a magnificent promise. What is so good about this? Why is it the right way to live? And And what does God promise when we do? It says there, They, those who do this, will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Saviour. That's the joy. God promises to bless those who trust him. He promises to vindicate those who call him their Saviour. He is the Saviour who wins. I suspect in our culture it will become increasingly challenging for people to live as Christians because increasingly we'll feel like we're just not fitting in, we're the odd ones out. We feel kind of on the outer and as if we're somehow weird or something like that. I think increasingly, especially as the world sort of drifts away from Christian morals and adopts a different set of morals. Uh, the world will look upon Christians with suspicion, if not outright hostility. And when it's like that, it's very hard. It's very hard to not feel like you fit in and, and feel like you're holding different values to, uh, to the majority. But the promise of God is that when we seek him, he will bless us. When we trust him, he will bless us. He will vindicate us. The person who believes in Jesus and puts him first no matter how awkward they might feel or how sort of not fitting in they might feel, that person will ultimately be proven to have made the right decision and have done the right thing. And whatever awkwardness or marginalisation or even hostility that might have arisen as a result will be more than amply compensated for. We will not feel shortchanged or let down. And verse six emphasizes this. It says, "There such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek Your face, God of Jacob." We can have confidence in God, but we must seek Him. Just doing the right thing isn't enough. It's very easy to just do the right thing. I live and I work amongst a whole heap of people who are who are good people, and all of them would would say, "I do the right thing," and generally they do. But seeking God, seeking Him personally is what the psalm calls us to do here, which at a minimum must mean seeking God in prayer and worship with his people. And every now and then I come across those who who talk about serving God, but show no evidence of seeking God. And I get troubled when I see that, because in the end, you cannot serve God if you do not seek God. We can do nothing for God if we are not seeking him. In the end, it is only those who seek God who receive his blessing. That is the person who can come into God's presence. So the first section of the psalm establishes God, the king of creation. The second section talks about who may come into his presence and it sort of imagines these worshipers coming up, entering the temple and talks about what qualifications um, can make them worthy to come into God's temple as it were. But verses seven to 10 then I think are a bit of a twist. They, they surprise us because the way the imagery flows God is now about to come into his temple. It sort of reminded me of the king's coronation a couple of months ago. you sort of, if you're watching it on TV there and, and all, the, uh, all the dignitaries are coming in and there's a bit of commentary talking about who's who and you're sort of noticing all the famous faces and everything. And then once everybody's in and everybody's seated and ready to go, then the procession starts. And finally, at the end of the procession, the king himself comes in. It's sort of the climax. He's the last one to enter. As it were. Or maybe if you've ever been to the cathedral in Goulburn and you've seen the consecration of a new diocesan bishop, it's a bit like that. Everyone's inside, everyone's excited, and and there's music playing in the background. And all of a sudden, at the beginning of the service, there's this loud bang, and it's the knock of a staff on the cathedral door on the outside. And it's the bishop knocking sort of in this um, formality of being asked to be allowed in, to come in, to enter into that which is now rightfully his. Well, I think the image in verses 7 to 10 is a bit like that, only stronger. God is about to enter his temple. And so even the gates and the doors are personified. It's as if it's saying, hey, doors, hey, you gates out there, guess what? Someone incredible is about to pass through you. Don't slump in despair, but lift up your heads, be excited, be blown away in wonder and amazement, because here comes your God. Who is this God? He is the King of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle, the warrior king, the God who defends his people. And so in him, we can be at rest, knowing that he drives out fear and protects us from danger. And our Saviour King is able to save us because he defeats our enemies. Such is the confidence that this psalm gives. But before we finish, it's important that we sort of translate it, do a bit of translation work to our context, because we are not ancient Israelites chanting or singing this psalm as we walk up that hill and prepare to worship the Lord in the temple. Rather, we are Christians. We live after the coming of Jesus. So what does this psalm say to us in our context in this day? I think it says this, that Jesus is the King of glory. Or to use the words of our second Bible reading, he's the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And he promises that ultimately whoever seeks him and trusts him and purifies their hearts and hands will be vindicated and saved and brought to glory. Jesus is the warrior king. He's not the warrior against human enemies. He refused to do that, but against death itself, against Satan and all forces of evil, against all sinful temptations and the miseries they result in. He's the one who vindicates all who seek him. So he cleanses us and purifies our past sins, our our unclean hands, our impure hearts. He forgives and purifies and cleanses us from all our sins. And in a little while, we'll be sharing in the Lord's Supper. And as we do so, it is a visible and tangible reminder of the cleansing and purification that Jesus has won for us at so great a cost. And so when we trust him, we have the hope that no matter how many struggles we might face in life, whether they're external struggles or internal turmoils and struggles, whatever they may be, in the end, Jesus is victorious. He has won the victory. He has entered heaven itself, and he will come back again to rescue those who love him and who will bring them to everlasting glory. So be encouraged, because this is the character of our God the God who created and upholds everything, the God who is the saviour of all who seek him, the God who has defeated death and evil and is the king of glory. And so my hope and prayer for you today is that your faith in this God might be encouraged and strengthened and that you may seek him always and so strive to live with pure hands and a clean heart. Amen.